All right, we're going to uh, read from God's Word from Matthew 5, so if you want to come grab a seat, we'll get into that. At City Light, we hold that the Bible is God's Word, and as it's read faithfully and taught accurately, it's God speaking to us. And so we are up to this section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about retaliation and the call to love your enemies. If you have a church Bible with you, that's on page 810. Uh, if not, it'll come up on the screen for you as well. Just before we read from that, uh, if you're looking to, um, if you have been reading this, good on you. Uh, if you haven't, there are 20 more copies up there um, to go through as well. It's a book called uh, Radical, um, which really in the end is not that radical, sorry to undercut it, um, but really is saying, look, if you look at uh, who Jesus is and what he has done, the response to him is not a minor one. Um, and really, um, it should be called logical, but that's not really very attention-grabbing. Um, but in the end, really is talking about, if we understand the gospel, the logical response is one that actually looks pretty radical in the Western church. So if you wanted to grab those, they're up the back. The key also is to pay for them. Um, Matthew five thirty-eight. we're starting at on Jesus' uh, words on retaliation. Matthew 5, sentence 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the, on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the Word of God. Hey guys, uh, my name is Jacob, if I haven't met you before. Um, it's, yeah, it's great to be up here with you guys to, this afternoon. Really excited to be getting into this passage that Jez just uh, read for us then. If you walked in and you were wondering why we have balloons up the back, not explain that. Like we had balloons last week because of Simon's birthday, but now maybe just wondering if we have balloons every week. We've got balloons because this morning uh, the 11 a.m. hosting team decided to put in a little bit of a tribute to the U.S. elections, or as I call it, a foretaste of the end of the world, uh, which is a few days away. And I'm feeling like mixed feelings about this this whole election thing going down. Uh, I think the last just really it's been almost a year. My morning ritual is to get up, turn on my phone open up the New York Times and see what crazy thing Donald Trump's done overnight. And now in a few days, it's going to decide either will that continue for the next four years or will I finally be able to stop that tradition. So a bit, bit worried about how that's going to go. But um, we're about to get into this passage now, and I think as far as the Sermon on the Mount goes, the verses that Jez just read for us, I think, are some of the most confronting. Um, Everything that Jesus says is, is countercultural, countercultural and, and radical. In particular, is just, is just so full-on and unlike anything that anyone has ever taught and lived before. But before we get into that, I just want to actually start by explaining to you guys, I guess, for me, what was one of the, the most 
influential things in my decision to become a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home, uh, which was pretty good most of the time, but I think up until about age 17 or 18, I didn't think Christianity was particularly impressive. It was just the, the norm for me. But when I was 17 years old, I had this amazing privilege to go and visit my auntie and uncle who were missionaries in a tribe called the Mercy, which is in remote rural Ethiopia. And, and honestly, this tribe of people is as remote as it gets. They're just days and days drive from even the city, the, the city in Ethiopia through these just terrible roads. They've got no clothes, no technology, no government. And it's a tribe of about 5,000 people. Uh, and of the 5,000, about 200 people are Christians, all of whom have become Christians since the early 90s, which is when missionaries first went to this people group. And it, culturally, it is so, so, so different to ours. And one of the main differences that I noticed was that as a society, they are built around this idea of retribution and revenge and retaliation. The, the tribe had had constant tribal warfare with the neighboring tribes around them that had been going just on for, for year after year. They would start over almost like nothing. Maybe one person from a tribe would, would take something from someone in the other tribe, which would cause that tribe to respond in killing one guy, which would cause that tribe to respond by killing, uh, going and doing a raid and taking a bunch of stuff and killing whoever was in the way. And it would escalate and escalate and escalate until the point in which there was just full-scale tribal warfare. And this had been going on for thousands of years. But even within the actual tribe, their whole system of justice was, and their whole system of security was built around the fact that basically every man in the tribe had like an AK-47-style automatic rifle, which they had got easily after a surplus after the Sudanese war. And it was just known that everyone had a gun and no one was afraid to use it. And so because you had a gun, you were safe, your family was safe, and your possessions were safe. But when I, I landed in this tribe with, with my mum and my grandma, visiting my auntie and uncle, I walked into this, I think at that point in my life, the most horrible situation I'd ever seen. Because Christians were, had become known as the people who wouldn't just go and kill you if you did something to them, they became the easiest targets for every sort of crime. And when I got there, they were in the middle of this situation where the church was trying to counsel and encourage one of the leaders of the church who had just had his daughter raped they were encouraging him to actually stand firm and not go and kill the person who had done it. And it was, it was absolutely horrific. It was, it was such a horrible place to be in. When you're in a culture that doesn't just have a police force that you can go and tell or whatever, to, to actually have to, to, to have to stop going and seeking revenge for something that's just absolutely abhorrent. And when I got there, this struck me as absolutely massive. Growing up in Australia, the most extreme thing that I thought Christianity called people to do was maybe you know, not get drunk on a Friday night, not go around making out with heaps of people, maybe skipping a sleeping on a Sunday morning um, to go to church. But here I saw a group of people who had only had the Christian message for, for less than a, a couple of decades, having it change them in issues of life and death. And it convicted me because although I thought I understood Christianity my gut reaction for this was, you guys are crazy. You've just got to go and get this guy and punish him for what he's done. That was my response. I couldn't understand why, they, why on earth would they just let this go and why would they forgive this person? I realized that they understood something in the gospel that I hadn't. And when we were there, one of the passages that they kept talking about and reflecting on as they worked out what to do in that situation was this one that we're reading tonight. This is Jesus laying down what it looks like to be a follower of him. 
whether you're a follower of him in 30 AD as, a, as an early Jewish Christian, whether you're a follower of him in 2016 in Australia, in Sydney, or whether you're a new African believer who has just heard the message in rural Ethiopia, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? So to, so to try to work out what Jesus is saying, I want you to imagine back. Imagine to you, that you're one of Jesus' first listeners who are hearing him give this sermon live on the, on the mountain that he's preaching on. And imagine that you're a first century Jewish follower of Jesus and you've just been out for the day fishing on a boat, on someone else's boat. You've earned just enough money to feed your family. You're walking back through the city gates of Jerusalem and there's a tax collector's booth on the side which has been set up by the Roman occupying force to collect taxes uh, from the Jewish population. And the tax collector calls you over to his desk. Uh, he demands that you pay 80% of what you've earned for the day. You knowing that you can't possibly pay that and still feed your family, say to him, look, you're not entitled to that. You know true well that the Romans don't demand that much money. But in response to that, he hops up onto the table and he smacks you in the face, embarrassing you and humiliating you in front of everyone. How do you respond? Imagine you continue your walk home to your family and a Roman centurion sees you, a non, not a Roman citizen, and knows that by law he's actually entitled to force you to carry his possessions wherever he's going. And he makes you carry all of his luggage back a mile out of the city, away from your home. What do you do? You get home that night and you find out that the owner of the boat that you're fishing on has accused you of stealing fish. And so he's suing you to take the very tunic off your back. And you know full well that you've been an honest worker that's never stolen anything. What do you do? What do you do if you're, a, if you're a Christian in Southeast Asia today and you rock up to church on a Sunday to realize that the building has been burnt down overnight and the pastor's wife is in tears because she doesn't know where her husband is? How do you respond? How do you respond if you're a Christian in Sydney and you realize that someone in your workplace has just been talking so much bad things about you to stop you from being able to get a promotion or be liked by your workmates? What do you do? What do you do if you've been wronged or mistreated in any of the many of ways that that happens to us on a regular basis? What do you do when you get cut off in traffic? But what do you do when you're a first, one of the first believers in a rural Ethiopian community and because you're a Christian you are targeted and your cattle are stolen and your daughter is raped? How do you respond? This is the question that Jesus is getting at in this passage and I don't want, so I don't want it to be possible to minimize what we're dealing with here. This isn't a question of what do you do if someone slaps you in the face. This is a question of how you respond in general when you are wronged. And on one level, what Jesus says here is simple. It's easy to just read his words at face value and say this is what he wants us to do. But on another level, this is one of the most difficult teachings he gives. So what I want to do today as we walk through this passage is be open just to listen to what Jesus says and let that convict us and confront us. And they would have open ears to respond to what Jesus is saying today. So I'm just going to pray. If you'd like to pray with me, please do. Heavenly Father, we just come to your word now and to a teaching that has uh, radically shaped and influenced uh, so many people over the past 2,000 years. We see this teaching that we, we may have heard before, uh, but we may not have really actually applied to our lives. We come to something that we're going to find confronting, Lord, and so we just pray that you'd be with us, that you would convict us the right amount, but also empower us to, to, obey, to obey what you're saying here. 
that we would understand why you're telling us to do what you're telling us to do. That we would actually be able to listen and be changed by your word today. Amen. So what we're going to see in this passage as we work, as we work through it is that there are basically three ways to respond when you're wronged. I've got them up on this, the first slide that will come up here. When you're wronged, you can respond in revenge, in retributive justice, or in forgiveness. And two of these we see explicitly in this passage, and the first one is actually presupposed. I'm just going to change this because I think it's making some weird noise. Is that, is that going to be better? Is it fine? Yeah. All right. I'm just getting some weird thing coming back here. Um, revenge, which is the first one I've got here, is what you might call the instinctive response to wrongdoing. It's this, this, it's this kind of automatic thing that kicks in. When you, when you receive wrong, when you're hurt, when something you, you love is taken away from you, revenge seeks to return this evil in extra force. So, you know, if someone cuts you in traffic, it's this response you just want to ram this person into a coming truck. Maybe really extreme, definitely never do it. But it's this, this, this kind of sense that comes over you. Or it's this idea that, you know, if your dog poos on my lawn, I'll wait till you're asleep and I'll go and I'll, like, poison your entire garden. Uh, but maybe, maybe more, I mean, now I'm going to tell you things that I've actually kind of felt. I've heard that you know, someone, someone speaks bad about me at work, and I find that someone's been talking behind my back. It's this desire just to make everyone else in the workforce just think really lowly of them, to actually just ruin their standing in the whole place. It's this idea that, that comes, which is, you've made me suffer, I'm not going to be satisfied till I've made you suffer more. And, and this desire for revenge comes pretty easily to most of us. Maybe some of us have like, different temperaments or, or, or we're maybe quicker to get angry than others. But to some extent, when, when someone hurts you in a way that really matters, when someone takes from you something you love and care about and value, the response we have is to want revenge. Throughout the history of the world, it doesn't, you don't have to look far to see this, that, that humongous wars and conflicts have been built on this idea of repaying evil for greater evil. You see families that have got kind of conflicts and, and family enemies for generations and generations. You see couples whose relationships have gone wrong kind of bite at each other and stab at each other and hurt each other, not even remembering why it began in the first place. Revenge is the idea that if you cut out my eye, I'll cut out both of your eyes. If you knock out my tooth, I'll knock out all your tooth. If you kill my sheep, I'll kill your flock. And because this is how we're kind of wired, and this is what comes out of us most naturally, when in the Old Testament, God called himself together a people and said, you're going to be my people, I'll be your God, I'm going to show you how to live. He gave them a law, which is basically this idea that although wrong needs to be punished, it needs to be punished justly. Do you have that other microphone? It's got that little, that ticking sound. Is everyone getting that? Um, that's going to be better, I think, hopefully, if we turn. Yes, that's way better. And, and what, what I'm going to call this law is the law of retributive justice. Basically, it's a law that says punishment should fit the crime. So if you cut out someone's eye, the penalty is you get your eye cut out. No more, no less. If you kill someone, you should be put to death. If you kill someone's animal, you make the correct repayment for their animal to be restored to them. This idea that the punishment should fit the crime. Now, this is a good law. I think, firstly, when we read this passage and it says, you know, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, we can think Jesus here is identifying something bad and now he's going to say something good. But the whole point of this, this is a law that God gave. 
This is a law that God gave to restrain this impulse of returning evil for even greater evil. It's, it's a just law that God has given. But it's on par when Jesus says in other parts of the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. He's not saying that the do not commit adultery law is wrong. When he says, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. He's not saying the do not commit murder law is wrong. But what he is going to do is going to show there's a better way. This law is a good law. It's to say wrongdoing needs to be punished. And God knows that and he sees that. But the punishment that should come should be fair. Because when you return wrong for greater wrong, it just escalates things. And when we hear of this idea of you know, cutting out eyes or knocking out teeth, we think that's very barbaric. And, and for sure, in our society, if we did that, it would be because we've got police and, and a prison system and a state debt recovery office and, and all these, kind of, these structures to make sure we've got other ways of doing things. But even at the end of the day, our system of, of law is built on this. So if you assault someone, they lose the use of an eye. The court isn't going to demand that you get your eye cut out, but it will be trying to work out how much jail time fits this crime because that's how much you should serve. But what Jesus does in this passage, he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You've heard it said, repay evil with just the fair amount of response. But I'm going to tell you something else. And he says, he says this third way to respond. And I want to make this really clear. This is what Jesus is telling his followers to do. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what you're called to. If you're not a follower of Jesus... We're so glad that you're here and we love that you're checking things out. But know that Jesus isn't just kind of demanding this of you out of nowhere. This is something that makes sense for his followers, but unless you follow Jesus, this won't make sense, and we're going to get to why later on. This third way that he says, although the word forgiveness isn't used in this passage, I think it's pretty clear that that's what's being talked about. Forgiveness is, is no simple thing, and I think even defining forgiveness is really hard, but the way that I'm going to use it today is forgiveness is releasing a debt. When you are wronged, when you're hurt, when something is taken from you, when you're offended, when you're betrayed, a debt is created. The wrongdoer now owes you something. In some cases, this is really simple. Uh, like if you went out and you took my car and drove down Darling Street and like crashed it into a wall... You would owe me something. You'd owe me a new car. You'd either have to replace the car with an equally amazing 1998 Subaru Impreza, or you would have to give me the money to kind of pay to get it, to get it repaired. You owe me something. Now, I can choose to not make you pay, but that means that I'm paying the debt myself. Either I, I pay by not having a car, or I pay by having to spend my money to get it, to get it done. So either you pay or I pay. A debt is created. And, and that's true with things that aren't necessarily financial as well. If you spread a lie about me, which causes people to think lowly of me, which is unfair, you owe it to me to go and make it right. You owe it to me to either restore things, or really, it's, it's kind of, it would make sense for me to say, that in that case, if you're going to drop me down, I'll drop you down as well. It's to seek equilibrium, to have, to have that debt repaid. But you don't have to think very long and hard at all to realise that with a, in a lot of wrongs, uh, the concept of Debt being repaid isn't so simple. You hear of murders occurring with multiple victims and a murderer being sentenced to 20 life sentences in prison. But the obvious problem with that is we only have one life. And then even then, if you think about it, if the murderer was able to live for a thousand years and be in prison for every single one of them, would that really repay what he's done? But at the end of the day, whether or not it's possible to make the payment... When wrong is done, when someone is hurt or offended or broken, a debt is created. 
Our wrongdoers become indebted to us when they wrong us. Now, we can seek to have that debt repaid through, through revenge, which is basically pay me the debt with interest. Give me what you've done wrong to me plus more. Or we can seek equilibrium through, retri- through retributive justice. But what Jesus calls his followers to is something else, which is to forgive the debt. Which basically is to say, you owe me something, but I'm not going to make you pay. It's to say, I'm going to pay that for you. That's what forgiveness is. And it's obviously a very, very generous act. And the examples that Jesus gives in this passage uh, show how, how generous this act of forgiveness is. Because it's, it's not just letting what's been done wrong go, but it's saying you're going to go even further than that to, to love and support the person that's wronged you. So he gives these examples, which um, they'll be on the next slide that come. First one he says is, basically, when you're hit, when someone hits you, instead of the next hit being you hitting them back, turn the other side of your face so they can hit you a second time. When someone tries to take one of your things, don't fight it off, let them take two. If you're forced to serve someone by walking with them a mile, quite literally go the extra mile. Do people deserve for us to respond in that way? Of course not. Do we have a right to not respond in that way? Definitely. So what Jesus is doing is so radical. He's he's, he's calling us to forego our right to personal justice in order for something greater, which is the act of forgiveness. And to clarify what he means by this, I think it's helpful to look at the next few verses in verses 43 and 44. Jesus says, You've heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Like Jesus keeps doing again and again and again on the Sermon of the Mount, he brings it down to an issue of the heart. At no point in Jesus' teaching is a take-home message, just go and do something differently. Get more of a control on your actions. Again and again and again, Jesus brings the issue down to the heart. He's not saying just get really good at copying punches to the face, but deep down just resent people and hate them and fantasize about their destruction. He's saying actually love them. And to, to love is to actually want the, the person that has wronged you to flourish. Not to flourish in their sin, but to flourish in what it means to be a person made in the image of God. To flourish in what it means to be human as someone who relates to God properly, who lives in harmony with other people, and knows their place in the world. When we are wronged, Jesus is saying, don't just seek your own good. That person that that has wronged you, I want you to seek their good. What is going to be good for them? It's to put the needs of the people that hurt us before our own. I think this gets summed up really well by Martin Luther, the great reformer, and he's he's talking about Christians um, obeying this message, and this is what he says. His description of Christians is they grieve more over the sin of their offenders than over the loss or offense to themselves. And they do this that they may, they, may, they may recall those offenders from their sin rather than avenge the wrongs they themselves have suffered. Therefore they put off the form of their own righteousness and put on the form of those others, praying for their persecutors, blessing those who curse, doing good to the evildoers, preparing to pay the penalty and make satisfaction for their very enemies that they may be saved. This is the gospel and the example of Christ. It is a full-on calling. 
And what Jesus is saying to do here in, in loving our enemies isn't just this moment of madness that he had where he just blurted something out because he ran out of content in his sermon. But this is the, the center of, of his whole ethic of how he responds to wrongdoing throughout the whole New Testament. I think it's summed up really clearly in Romans chapter 12, which I'm going to read now as well. It'll be on the screen. In Romans 12, it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals in his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The whole world returns evil with evil. That is, that's how we live. That's what comes naturally. Jesus calls his followers to break that pattern and return evil with good. Responding in revenge multiplies evil. It just spreads suffering and misery even further than it already was. Retributive justice keeps evil at bay. It's like a wall. It blocks evil from going any further. It restrains it. But what forgiveness does is that it absorbs the evil, it swallows up, and then it returns something better. It returns love, seeking healing and the betterment of the evildoer. This is what Jesus calls his people to, to radically forgive and love their enemies. Now, we're going to get to why we should do this in a moment. Uh, We're going to get to why, because I think it's really important. But before we get to that, I want to pause and note how difficult this is. Jesus is telling us to do something that couldn't come any less naturally to us. When we are wronged, every single thing in us cries out for justice. When we're hurt, we want to see the wrongdoer exposed and crushed. Forgiveness doesn't seem right in those moments. And, And this whole idea of forgiveness, it raises a lot of questions. I've just been sitting here preparing this talk, just thinking about all the things you can say in response to it, all the things that I feel in response to it as well. And so although this teaching of Jesus is difficult, and it's meant to be difficult, and it always will be difficult, I thought it might be just helpful just to clear up a bit of the confusion around forgiveness so that we're not finding it difficult for the wrong reasons. So I want to go through some of the things that forgiveness doesn't mean, because I think this is where maybe we get a little bit confused. So forgiveness, firstly doesn't mean condoning evil. I think one of the biggest hesitations we can have to forgive people is that we think that if we forgive them, we're basically saying that what they've done is okay, or at least acting like it's okay. But that couldn't be less true. The first step to forgive is to condemn. If forgiveness is releasing a debt that someone owes you, the first step for that is identifying the debt. Forgiveness starts with calling sin what it is. Either It's to say either explicitly or implicitly, you've wronged me, you've hurt me, and you owe me. And it's only from that starting point that you can move to what forgiveness is, which is to say, despite that being true, out of love, I'm not going to make you pay. Oscar Wilde said, I just really love this line, he said, forgive your enemies, nothing annoys them more. And what he's getting at, like it's just, you know, a creepy little saying, but what he's, what he's getting at is saying that when you forgive someone, you are actually saying to them that they are in a position of debt to you. That the act of forgiveness in and of itself is saying, you owe me, you have done wrong. It's a condemnation. 
but it's saying you're not going to make them pay and you're actually going to pursue their good. So forgiveness identifies evil for what it is. Secondly, forgiveness doesn't mean disregarding justice. God is a God of justice. God loves justice. He loves fairness. And Christians are called to fight for justice. This just isn't a sermon on fighting for justice, but it is in the Bible and it is clear that Christians are to care about justice. Forgiveness means forgiving the debts that are owed you. But it doesn't mean turning a blind eye to the evil that's around you. It doesn't mean ignoring the wrongdoing that happens to other people, and it doesn't mean not, be, not being willing to defend them and stand up for them. Some of the most ardent defenders of human rights, the most ardent defenders of people that have been um, abused or neglected or sidelined, have been people that have been most willing to forgive the personal wrong, wrongs done to them. As a Christian, I am called to forgive the wrongs done to me, but that doesn't mean I should, should not seek to stop wrongs being done to other people. Thirdly, forgiveness isn't incompatible with discipline. What forgiveness means is that you no longer desire the suffering or payback of someone who has wronged you, but instead you seek their utmost good. Now, a lot of the time, seeking someone's utmost good will still mean that, that they may need to actually experience some of the consequences of their actions and of what they've done. Think of the example of a child who has a tantrum and screams and, you know, and throws a plate of food at their parents. The, the right response for those parents, I think we'd agree, is to forgive the child. It's not to want to, just, to, to long for the downfall of that child or, or to, to long for the child to suffer or to even kind of throw the food back so it's kind of fair, right? That's not, that's not an appropriate response. Forgiveness is what you'd hope for in that situation. Forgiveness and love for the child. But for the child's own good... They may need to experience some, some means of learning through this. They may need to have a, a time out to think about what they've done. They may need, may need to have to clean up the mess that they've made, not as a means of the parents getting even, but because learning that actions have consequences is an important part of growing up, and it's actually good for the child to learn that. Now, multiply that up a way bigger scale. There are some wrongdoings that would actually meet the criteria of like a criminal offence. Jesus says we should forgive, no matter how, how bad the thing is, we should forgive, which means we shouldn't desire the suffering of the perpetrator. We shouldn't just hope that they rot in jail and, or experience pain. But forgiveness of a person and a desire for their good may not be incompatible with the need, say, to serve a sentence in prison or to pay some kind of fine, which would hopefully, hopefully be some kind of rehabilitative process. But it's also just not even compatible with, even if there's no chance of rehabilitation, that forgiving someone isn't incompatible with needing them to be removed from society, say, so that the rest of society can be safe and at peace um, and that morality can be upheld. So forgiveness is not incompatible with that. Also, forgiveness doesn't mean that the wrongdoer shouldn't repent. One of the biggest debates about forgiveness is, can you forgive someone if they haven't repented, if they haven't confessed what they've done and apologised? Some people say, no, you can't. You can only forgive someone if they come to and ask, ask for forgiveness. Uh, the issue, I think, with that is that basically then you're asking someone to earn their forgiveness, but forgiveness is a gift that, that can't really be merited. It's definitely a lot easier to forgive someone who's repentant and who has said sorry and who has identified that they're, that they're in the wrong and that they're trying to do something to make it better. It's, it's easier to forgive in those situations. 
But forgiveness doesn't demand that. We're called to, to forgive wrongdoing to us whether or not the person repents to us or not. But even though we do that, for them to receive this gift of forgiveness, of course they need to repent. They need to confess their, their wrongdoings and accept the forgiveness. It's kind of like, you know, I could, um, I could send you a gift in the mail and you can get that little ticket from Australia Post saying that the package is ready to be collected after 5pm, yada yada. And I've done my part. I've sent you the gift. I've put it out there. That's my desire. That's my hope. That's what I've done. But unless you go and collect the gift, you haven't received it. We shouldn't wait for people to repent before we begin the process of forgiving them. We should hope and we should pray that they do come to the point where they realize that they've done wrong and for their own good that they repent and try to to find a new way forward. But it doesn't demand it. And lastly, forgiveness doesn't mean trusting a person again. I think it's one of the most important ones. Forgiving someone doesn't mean that just suddenly everything is okay. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you pretend that it's just never happened and you just carry on as, as before necessarily. It might mean that some of the times, particularly if it's maybe something not too big or if it's the first time that it's happened, but, but particularly in situations where, where wrongdoing has just been perpetual and ongoing, forgiveness may not mean that a relationship gets restored straight away. It may not mean that the relationship ever gets restored. It may not mean that you ever have kind of warm, nice feelings about that person again. It does mean you're not going to make them pay. It does mean that you're not going to be bitter and resentful towards them and you're going to do everything within your power to release that. But trust is something that might take a long time to come back again. Now, all those little side points, just some of, some of I'm sure there's more, some of the, the things that came in my head this week as I was preparing that, that, that is hard about this teaching. But all of those points aren't to say that forgiveness is easy. Despite everything I've just said then, about some of these misconceptions, forgiveness is still extremely, extremely difficult. Because for all the things that forgiveness doesn't mean, it's the things that forgiveness does mean that makes it hard. Forgiveness means releasing the need for someone else to feel pain because of the pain that they've made you feel. Forgiveness means releasing the need for someone else to be shamed because of the guilt that they carry. Forgiveness means releasing the bitterness and hatred we feel for people because of what they've done to us. Forgiveness means adopting a posture of love towards someone who may very well hate you. And all of that is hard. And so the question that we need to answer is why? Why would we do this? Why wouldn't we just stick to, to retaliation and repayment? Why wouldn't we just stick to that? Why would we go this extra bit into forgiveness? Why would you love someone who doesn't love you? Why would you love someone who wants to hurt you? Well, the answer that Jesus gives is this. In verse 45, he says, this is the reason that you would turn the other cheek. It's the reason that you'd forgive. It's the reason you'd love your enemy. It's so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Big idea is we do this because this is what God does. If you want to have the likeness of God, if you want to be someone who resembles God, do what God does. What does God do? Well, the first thing Jesus goes to is he points out that God doesn't give good things depending on whether people deserve it or not. Good and bad people have sunny days and wet days, is what, is what Jesus says pretty much. 
Um, it would be easier if you like walked down the street and like bad crooks had like a little cloud of rain, like always raining on them, and then trustworthy people had like light. So if someone came up to you and said, "Hi, I'm the wallet inspector," you'd know if you should give your wallet to them. But a few like Simpsons fans out there like a bit of a Simpsons gag. I was thinking about maybe I'm going to try to slip a Simpsons reference into every sermon. I don't know. But but what Jesus is saying is that's not how God works. God doesn't just bless the good and punish the evil. That's not how God works at all, which is such, such good news for us. And it's not good news for us because of the weather thing. It's good news for us because the greatest good that God shows doesn't come in the form of sunshine or in rain. The greatest good that God has for us comes in the person of Jesus. God loves us. He desires relationship with us, and he makes relationship possible. But we, myself, and every person in this room have wronged God. We've hurt him, we've cheated God, we've robbed God, we've lied to God, we've, we've shamed and embarrassed God, we've insulted him, we've ignored him, and we've hated him. And you might respond, no, I haven't. But think of all the good things you've enjoyed in your life that you have not stopped to thank the God who gave them to you. Think of the times where you've known the right thing to do, whether you knew that God wanted you to do something or whether you just had this inbuilt sense of right and wrong and yet you chose to do the wrong thing. Think of all the times where you've put down or hurt other people who are people that God loves dearly. Think of all the times you've just lived like he's not there. We've wronged God, we've hurt him. If God were not a forgiving God, there would be no hope for anyone. If God loved us only based on our attitude towards him, there would be no hope. If God only loved those who loved him, there would be no hope. But God is a God who loves his enemies. God is a God who forgives his wrongdoers. And that, this is the whole hope of Christianity. This is the main point of the whole thing. If you're, if you're here checking out what Christianity is about, this is it. Although we were indebted to God, he paid the debt himself. That's it. That is what this is all about. He could have made us suffer and die for the wrong that we've done, but instead he suffered and died for all to see how much he loves us. As God died on the cross in the person of Jesus, he was stabbed, insulted, mocked, humiliated and hated, and he forgave. Jesus didn't just issue this teaching about turning the other cheek and loving your enemies and then do nothing with it. He, he exemplified it in an amazing way. He followed through. He didn't respond in violence when violence was shown against him. He didn't long for the destruction of the people that were hurting him. To the opposite, he longed for their salvation. He longed for their happiness. When people were killing Jesus and laughing at his pain and misery, he was thinking, I want these people to be happy. And I want them to be happy in the fullest possible way in knowing God, in having that relationship restored and experiencing eternal life. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine feeling a desire for someone's happiness who is right there in front of you, attacking you for your utter misery? I can't imagine it. But that is what Jesus does for us. He forgave you. This is for you. With the wrong that you've done, for me, I just think of the, the times this week where I've just lived for me 
and desired my happiness and cared nothing for God. And yet what he still wants is for me to experience joy and happiness and fullness. If you haven't been thankful in a while, be thankful now. Our sins were not counted against us and we were forgiven. We're called to forgive as Christians, not just because there's a bit of writing in the Bible that says, go and forgive. We're not just following an instruction or a command. We want to do this because it represents God. The greatest revelation of God's character that's ever happened occurred in the greatest display of forgiveness and love, which was him dying on the cross. We're meant to be like him in this because this is the only rational way to respond to what's been shown to us. The degree in which we understand how much we've been forgiven is how much we're going to long to forgive. Knowing we've been forgiven and then the desire to go and forgive others goes hand in hand. We forgive because we've been forgiven much. To to not be willing to forgive is to not accept the reality of grace that's been shown to you in the gospel. What comes naturally to me is justice, revenge, retaliation. When, when I'm wronged, I want to see the person that's wronged me hurt. But the way that God deals, his primary means of dealing with wrongdoers is not of punishment, but it's of mercy and of grace. So what does it show about us if we don't do likewise? I came across this quote this week by a guy called Miroslav Volf. He's got a crazy name. But um, and it's going to come up on the screen for you as well. He says... At the sight of our sin, God did not give way to uncontrolled rage and measureless vengeance. Neither did God insist on just retribution. Instead, God took our sin and condemned it in Jesus Christ. But God did, but God did so not out of cowardice, but in order to free us from sin's gulf and power. That is how we should treat those who transgress against us. We should absorb the wrongdoing in order to transform the, wrongdoer, the wrongdoers. Forgiveness mirrors the generosity of God, whose ultimate goal is neither to satisfy injured pride nor to justly apportion reward and punishment, but to free sinful humanity from evil and thereby reestablish communion with us. This is the gospel in its stark simplicity, as radically countercultural and at the same time as beautifully human as anything one can imagine. For Jesus, how we respond when we are wronged is the surest mark of whether or not we've understood how God relates to us. If we've been forgiven much, our desire should be to grow in forgi- to be forgiving people who mirror the character of God. Now, obviously, we're not God. You and me are sinful, broken people. And so I just want to make it clear. This isn't saying that if you find forgiveness difficult, then you're not a Christian. Of course it's not saying that. If you know what God has done, you will want to be a forgiving person. But that may not mean that you can forgive straight away. It may not mean that forgiveness is painful and a long, arduous process to get there. I'm aware of some of the hurts that people in this church have experienced that are are almost unimaginable and the ways that people have been wronged. And I'm sure there's countless others that I've got no idea about in this room where you've been wronged in in, in immeasurable ways. This isn't saying in any way, shape, or form that forgiveness will just be this easy thing that becoming Christian is like hitting a switch and then all of a sudden you've forgiven everything. Love does not come quickly and easily. But this is what we need to be working towards. Now, 
part of being in a community is the good news that we don't have to do this alone. If you've been hurt or wronged, City Light is a place where you can find people to actually walk with you down this difficult and long and painful path to forgiveness. I hope we are under, we are under no illusion at this church that this world is often a messed up and painful place to live. And the absolute last thing I'd want to do in this sermon is to have anyone just walk away just feeling more guilty and hopeless about how difficult forgiving is. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus gives hard teachings. Jesus doesn't mince his words when he speaks. He says it how it is and he calls us to what we need to be. But he also promises to help us seek to live out his way. He empowers us by his spirit. He comforts us when we fail. And he loves us despite how, how utterly powerless we are to actually sometimes do what he calls us to do. And one of the gifts that Jesus gives us who follow him is the church. And so if this is something that's just hitting you as being, this is just so hard. This is like, I can do all the other, we're looking at some of the mount, yes, I, you know, I, can, I can make sure I don't go and sleep with people and I can make sure I'm just not like angry all the time and, and I'm not you know, praying out on the streets. That, but, but this one thing I can't do, I can't forgive this person. If you're just feeling overwhelmed by that prospect, make sure you speak to someone. Come and speak to me. Come speak to, to Jez or to Gav or to someone who brought you along or a friend or, so, or your community group leader or someone else in your community group. We, we have this thing called the church, which is a bunch of people who are committed to all walking this road together. City Light, as, as a whole, we want to walk down this road to being forgiving people that image this reality of God's grace. We want to help each other do that. And so I don't want anyone to walk out if you're feeling like, oh, I'm alone on this impossible task. We can talk about so much more. We can pray about this as well. That's what we want to be doing on the, on the back of this. So don't walk away discouraged. There is hope in knowing Jesus that we can actually do what he's calling us to. I'm going to finish in a moment, but I just want to finish by looking at a few of these last verses. In verses 46 to 48, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love, just in and of itself, is not the defining mark of a follower of Jesus. Anyone can love people that are lovely. Anyone can love people who do good things for us and make our lives better. Anyone can, can love when, it, when it's at no cost to us whatsoever. The point of this is, love as the mark of a follower of Jesus is love that is costly. It's love when it impacts you negatively. It's love when it's a choice between someone else's good and your own good. So often love, you can kind of have it, have the, have it both ways. It's, there, it's good for them, it's good for you. But loving your enemy, that's a choice. And this is what's going to impact the world. This is what's going to make Christianity make sense to a watching world. Coming to a building on a Sunday isn't compelling or interesting or anything, really, in the, in the big scheme of things. People go to buildings all the time. What is going to transform... I don't know. I've gone way off script with this whole thing. <laughs> um, what, what is going to affect people? I just think back to, to, to what I saw when I went to, went to Ethiopia. 
is something which makes no sense if not for the case that Christianity is true. That it makes no sense. If we haven't been forgiven, then what we're doing is just absolutely crazy. This is what we want to be committed to. We want, when a watching world looks in and they see a city like the community, not just to see people that love lovely people, not just to see people that love easy, easy people, but people that are different in the way that we respond when we're hurt, when we're wronged, when people do evil to us. I'm just going to pray and finish because I just don't know what I'm saying anymore. Um, <laughs> I, I, this is what happens when we laugh once and now, I'm, now I've lost it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray now that God will be helping us do this. Um, and going back to when it was serious a moment ago, uh, if, if you, this is something which has really just impacted you, don't walk out today without doing something about it. Whether that's writing it on a slip to be followed up later on, or that's coming and speaking to someone tonight and being prayed for tonight. Um, we want to be doing this as a church because it's going to show off the glory of God. So I'm going to pray now. So um, if you would, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, just, uh, we, we come before you as people that are, have been struck by your word and have seen the, the radical teaching of, of your son, who not just taught radical things but lived a radical life who not just taught to love the enemies, but, but who, who loved us. And so we just want to say thank you for the love you've shown us, for the way that you've forgiven us all of our sin and our evil and our wrong. And we want to ask that you'll be transforming us as a people to be people who, who are sons of the Father, sons and daughters of the Father, who, who show what it means to be people that have been loved and forgiven more than we could ever imagine that we would want to actually swallow up the evil in this world into good. That we wouldn't just be people who add to the evil in the world, but return evil with love. And we just know we need help with that. We know we need help in so many ways. We need help by your spirit. We need help by your grace. We need help by each other. And we need help by your word. And so we just ask that you would help us in this as we keep going. And we just pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.